This podcast is brought to you by the Chilean sea bass. This staple in the seafood market is known to grace many restaurant menus. However, this is only due to a renaming of its common name, the Patagonian toothfish. It's living proof that sometimes all you need is a rebranding campaign. Cheers to you, Chilean sea bass. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another wonderful episode of Getting Fishy With It, the Getting Fishy With It podcast. I forgot to call everyone Little Minnows. <laughs> is that a bad idea? <laughs> I, I read that and I was like, that's a little creepy. <laughs> it's creepy. I wrote it in there and I thought it was funny and I decided not to do it. So I bailed on that. That's fine. We'll keep all this in. Don't edit any of this out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to get right into what's new. Guys, we're going to be talking about joint development and regeneration. But before we do that, we're going to see how everyone's weeks were. Um, So Amber, would you like to start? What's new with you? Yeah, so what's new with me? So I think it was last weekend. No, uh, the weekend before, actually. So I just got back from California um, after doing the diversifying ocean sciences with MISS. So minorities and short sciences. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) So it was like this week long program to where I basically got sent to UC Merced, which is in Merced, California. And I got to work with a PI and kind of learn like what she does in the lab. So she does stable isotope analysis with shark samples. Um, So it could be like shark teeth or shark, I guess, like skin, (laughs) even though they Mm. don't really have skin. Um, But uh, samples like that. And also got to go to Yosemite, uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium. And so oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, just yeah, hang same. out with all these. Yeah. <laughs> just hang out with all these um, other um, girls who were also minority. So it's just really cool and also very empowering. That's awesome. I have one question. Did you see the giant ice pod? So yes. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we got to touch them too. Uh, that's, yeah. I think that's on the list of animals that you like. Like you're into those. One okay. of my favorite animals. And I think if what? I got to touch one, I would like cry. I would like weep openly. So oh, you have to go there then because there's so many of them. And it's like armor. Like it really feels like like you could just like, yeah, like it really feels like tough. So that's how awesome. big are they? The isopods. Oh, they're very big. Like, I don't. These are I, like, so yeah. for the lay person, like, these are like those like pill bugs or isopods. Yeah, like, they're like giant roly pullies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like, yeah. they can get like a foot long. Wow. Yeah. The biggest isopods? I think they can get like a foot long easily. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Love it. And I, <laughs> they must have to do something to acclimate them to like the, the not being at depth as well. So. Because they're like a deep sea animal. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. I feel like I learned a lot about deep sea and survival after uh, the, <laughs> the submersible. <laughs> I was looking up all sorts of stuff. And like I, I learned like, wow, I thought sperm whales could go a lot deeper than they actually could. When I was looking at everything, I was like, wow, they actually can't go so deep. These guys were really asking for it. Yeah. Well, not mam- asking for it, but. Mammalian bodies have limitations <laughs> big time. <laughs> big time. Very true. Well, yeah. What about you, Christine? Oh, uh, so I know it's been a while since we recorded last. So for I know both Amber and I, our birthdays were in June. So June has now passed, but uh, happy belated birthdays. Yeah, yeah. For my birthday, I ended up buying myself a day long intro course to falconry. (laughs) Because, uh, sorry, bird people, 
or sorry, fish people. I also like birds. So I wanted to learn a little bit about falconry and, you know, I can't get enough of playing as a ranger or whatever in video games. So I wanted to try it IRL. So, um, yeah, there's a place, an outfitter facility just South of here that has falconry muse. And so they have all kinds of like eagle owls and falcons and hawks and eagles. And they basically do a day long kind of like intro course on like, you know, what you need to know and all the, the laws and the animal health end of things. Their muse are really cool. So muse are where they keep these birds. They're kind of like kennels for the birds. They're pretty cool. And then basically we learned how to like recall the birds and how to do, you know, general like behavior checks and things like that. And then we went on a, what they call a hawk walk where you go out in the field with uh, this time it was a Harris hawk and we would send the bird mm. into the trees and then recall the bird back and we would feed little bits of mouse or bits of chick or whatever to the bird when it would recall. So it was really cool. Um, I think I might want to do more of that in the future. So we'll see. Do you feel it when they get claws like, or when their talons hit your arm? Like, do you feel like the strength? <laughs> um, A little bit. The, the thing that was really weird for me was, and I have like pretty strong arms. Like I lift tanks of water all day. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, but one of the birds, the biggest bird that they had was a Eurasian Eagle Owl, which is like five pounds, which mm. doesn't sound like a lot, but birds are actually pretty lightweight, you know, because their bones are usually pretty hollow because they need to be able to fly. But I had that eagle owl on my arm and my arm just started like shaking eventually. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just sitting there like glaring at me, you know, and uh, a little intimidating. And its wingspan is like six plus feet or something like that. It's wild. And my arm was just like shaking. I'm like, I'm not shaking because I'm scared. This is just a lot to hold on my arm. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you couldn't, you, you wear like a giant leather glove, kind of like the same gloves you hand use when you're handling angry cats. Another one of my favorite things to do. And uh, you couldn't really feel the talons. They're actually pretty like deft with their talons. So they don't just like crush you basically. So that yeah. is awesome. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. How about you, Josh? Uh, yeah. And then for me, I don't know that I had a whole lot going on. I feel we talked about it off the pod, but I got a new uh, gaming monitor that is wider than uh, my desk by a wide margin. It's 49 inches wide. So I feel like I'm inside the video game now. So you can also feel <laughs> yeah. like you're inside the Zoom with us. Like, just like that's true. I feel like I'm in the room with you guys right now. This is great. High five. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Nice. So that's it. I, I'm sure other things have happened, but um, yeah, it's it's been it's been great. There's still a gigantic box behind me, and I like don't have the heart to throw it out because I'm like, you know, if we ever move. So, all right, guys, ladies and gentlemen, we're pleased and excited to have Ernesto Gagarin. So he's a he's a research assistant in a zebrafish lab at Columbia University, and he will be joining uh, University of Chicago in the fall to start his PhD. Did I get that right? Yeah. Perfect. Well, welcome. What's new with you, Ernesto? Oh, man. Uh, what is new with me? Well, uh, we just came off a long weekend. I uh, I took Monday off. And uh, yeah, so through the Saturday and Sunday into Monday, um, my partner and I went up to Vermont, hung out with some friends. Um, they just moved up there and bought a house, which is really weird because we're like, mm. oh, man, like... <laughs> Is this what we're yes. supposed to do now? Yeah, it's like, okay, <laughs> yeah. like some of the homies have houses. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, homeownership couldn't be me. But um, 
yeah that was cool vermont's a really cool place uh the vibe is very unique it's like rural and like liberal and libertarian Mm -hmm. and it's just like very interesting because Mm. it's all these things plus like people have guns but they also have like pride flags and like black lives matter flags <laughs> um but they're also like no what black a mix. people in vermont yeah, so it's, just, yeah. like, I mean, it's really interesting but it, it was overall like a really cool vibe and yeah we actually we went out to this uh bog um like an hour and a half south of burlington vermont and uh basically it's just this bog or fen if you want to get technical and um we, we like to get technical yeah, on this I show do. So. i do so yeah. Yeah. Thank uh, you. <laughs> but it was it was really cool it was this boardwalk that extends out into a bog or fen mm-hmm. and inside this bog slash fen um there were um native carnivorous plants growing and nice. this time of year there were native slipper orchids in bloom oh and there's tons of them so like uh we'll, we'll get into like my fish history uh later in the podcast history. But I started with fish <laughs> <laughs> um, i started with fish um and a lot of those skills kind of transferred over into um growing plants mm. so like during the pandemic i was like doing fish and then i got into orchids and like now i'm just really into orchids because i work with fish and i don't want to work with it with fish and then come home and do more fish stuff yeah so, i get that yeah it's it's you know at first you're like oh yeah this is really cool i'll just monetize my interests and then you're like oh everything feels like work <laughs> Yes, it's true. I was like that with with snakes for a long time. I used to breed oh, yeah. and keep snakes, and uh, oh, yeah, it's cool. It got to be too much, <laughs> and then it oh, was just snakes. like uh, so. Old, a lot of old world boas, so sand boas, um, ground boas from like Madagascar. Um, I kept some like uh, rubber boas, things like that. And then the mm-hmm. other group of animals that I had a lot of were just the whole lamprapeltis like and like i had lots of milks and uh and i had uh i even had some kings and stuff too mm. so but i had like it was funny because at one point they ended up reclassifying lamprapeltis a little bit like just genetically and so i went from having like a few different subspecies of milks to like seven and it was like cool mm. <laughs> that's fun oh the splitters are at it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I shouldn't breed these guys together anymore. They're technically not the same animals anymore. I don't know. Um, I feel like they did that with fish too. Like, they oh, just sure. like all the African cichlids. Like, I was like, all these names that I learned like a long time ago, like Siphotlapia mm-hmm. frontosa, like they all just changed. And then I was like, didn't know what anything was anymore. And now I've like lost it all, which is sad. <laughs> Wait, there's more than one frontosa? I think I think there's I think it's just isn't it Siphotilapia? What is the um the frontos? Now I have to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to put you Dang on the it, spot. guys. Well, should we get started on the podcast while you're looking stuff up? We shall absolutely. So I can I can start. I w- I just want to confirm that it is Siphotilapia frontosa. That's what it is. It's a humphead cichlid. So oh. if you guys know about them, yep. Anyway, let's get into it with our boy Ernesto. Um, so Ernesto, of course, let's nerd out about our favorite thing, fish. This is a fish podcast after all. It's enough uh-huh. of your orchid nonsense. This is not getting orchids <laughs> with it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're just orchiding. <laughs> just orchiding. There you go. Oh, we we do love puns. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's, okay. So first of all, how did you get interested in fish? Like, how did you start this whole process i think we all talked about sort of how we got into the love of it but please yeah i mean all right so um oh man 
it was uh in preparation for uh my freshman year of undergrad i um i went to a pet store with my sister and she was like yeah like i'll get you a dorm pet what do you want and i was like um i remember really liking beta fish growing up why don't we get one of those um i eventually mm. learned that it was pronounced beta but that's neither here nor there uh <laughs> but uh yeah like i i got this little guy his name was clarence and he he uh had long black fins with like blotches of red and blue and i just spent a lot of time staring at him and then i i, I reached a point where i was like why why these colors like what is there like a pattern to to inheriting these colors like what's the deal so then I just started Googling and it turns out this, this is super well documented. There was a guy, Gene Lucas, I think in the sixties or seventies. And he just like did tons of research on basic like betta fish color genetics. And turns out a lot of it behaves like Mendelian. So anyways, mm. there, there were just a lot of um, resources online and I just fell down this rabbit hole. And then basically one thing led to another. I got on fish forums and then I found, <laughs> and then I've, I've uh, kind of just been, hanging out on these Facebook groups since eventually it got to the point where I joined the uh, international beta Congress and uh, mm. entered some fish and some fish shows every now and then. But that's basically how it all started. But like, I think what really like got things going was when I uh, moved into an apartment with some buddies um, in undergrad and we had this spare closet and we weren't really using it for anything. So I was like, Hey guys, what if, what if I like kept fishing here? So I like looked into it and I was like, what's a, what's a cost-effective way to heat all of these um, tanks and like vessels for my uh, betta fish that I want to breed. And I basically found that if you have a small enough room, you can just stick a space heater in there and that that's it. That's all you need. So I got to it. Uh, it, it, it became known as the, the fish closet. Hell <laughs> so yeah. Nice. Space heater, a bunch of jars, like really weirdly humid. And every time we had like friends over, I had, um, tell them to close their eyes and push them into the closet and they just look around like super, super. <laughs> dis- um, but yeah, I mean, that's where it all started, really. Like, I just got really into the color genetics of it, um, as well as like the fin. Uh, there's there there are um, there are there are some traits that are regulated um, in a Mendelian sort of way um, with like fin morphology. Others are more polygenic. But basically, I just I just liked um, mixing and matching all of these genes and it was just kind of like uh, beta fish are really cool they're just like very modular um and you can give it enough time and space and energy like make a fish look like whatever you want it to which is really cool and i really liked that um but yeah that's how it started i don't know do you i want sort me- of equate <laughs> like i do equate like beta fish and beta fish breeding to like the dogs now like what dogs are like how like they we apparently had some sort of like predecessor at you know, I think it was all the same, right? Like a Canis familiaris or whatever the scientific name is for dog. And then we just made all these species that is still just this, or all these different like varieties and strains of the same species, right? It's like, you no, could it's say really fascinating though. Like with the benefish, like they, uh, oh, what's his face? Um, uh, Andres, I think he, he published, mm-hmm. he pub- I think he published the paper on, uh, with a, a, some other scientists, but they, they published a paper on, sort of the population structure of the domestic betta fish and basically found that like, you know, kind of like what you were saying, like there are like different varieties that are more or less like inbred to the point where you can kind of clearly like pick out like, oh, here are the, the blue ones and the red ones, yeah. et cetera. But with all other varieties, there's actually introgression from um, other species outside of just betta splendens. Mm-hmm. So like 
you know, you have, you have Beta Splendens, Beta Smaragdina, uh, Mahakai, um, all sorts of stuff. So basically, these are all like, they're species in the sense that like, you have reduced fertility in between one species and another, but they're still uh, gene flow. And as a result, you have like this introgression from other species and these different varieties. So um, basically, you know, just like breeders in Thailand and Indonesia were just like, yeah, these fish have traits we want. What if we just try to cross to these guys and then back cross to the parent species to get that that trait back into the species and like increase fertility? Um, mm. Anyways, I, I just think it's neat. Yeah, it's definitely really cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's really awesome. We're going to have to get you to come back and talk about betta fish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I could, I could do a whole episode hours. about them yeah 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 hours yeah. on betta fish definitely mm-hmm. that's awesome we can see the look in your eyes even when you're talking about them now you got really excited like yeah yeah <laughs> lost in the sauce dude like it's it's been a minute since i've had a chance to talk about betta fish i work with zebra fish all the time so yeah not often i get to talk about bettas but besides the betta fish um in a in a similar vein i got really into breeding like live bearers like i i had like a, this project with like sword tails and platies and same deals. It scratched the same itch. Um, yeah. And then I got into breeding like Central American cichlid hybrids. Like, I, I, like you know, uh, flower horns are super polarizing, but I think flower horns are neat. Also, red Texas cichlids. I think those guys are cool too. So I, I bred those for a while. Um, but yeah, same same thing really. Just I liked the mixing and the matching of the genes and how modular everything was. Mm. Are flower horns like a um, a hybrid that's sterile, or are they they're a hybrid, right? Yeah, they're yeah. a hybrid, and I know that there are different varieties that are all broadly like under the umbrella of flower. Sure. But I think that um, their fertility is pretty variable, and it varies by strain, but also I think by breeder as well. Um, I think like some breeders have like repu- uh, like good reputations around the fertility of their stock, but it's like really variable. You get really in the weeds of things, and um, yeah, I think uh, you just have to like find like the one or two people that know a lot about flower horns to get that information. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, they're cool. huge in the hobby. They can go for a lot of money too. Like I remember they, they can go for like close to a hundred dollars on them. And I'm like, and that's for the small ones and the adults I'm sure go for plenty more than that. So yeah, for sure. Like I think there are just like different traits that people really value. Yeah. Like the big, the big humps on their heads, um, like really bright red coloration, like flex of uh, aridophores with this sort of like even like distribution throughout um mm-hmm. yeah I, but i don't know it, it kind of depends on uh the, the person and what they're looking for um you, you have all these people who are like oh no this kind of flower horn's better oh no this one and <laughs> it, it, it's kind of crazy like yeah. fish people are wild uh, i'm fish sure you guys people know. are wild yeah i've talked yeah. about i've talked before about like going to like fish auctions and stuff like that and what that was yeah. like <laughs> as a kid uh, and it was always like plenty of characters and people who are like nerding out about fish and like have very strong opinions about some stuff yeah and like man i mean yeah flower horns uh, by the way i should i should mention this because i looked it up it, it is kind of some people don't know exactly which uh central american cichlids they like mated them with but it has like some from like a blood parrot which is another hybrid and then there's yeah. like red devil in there there's just a bunch of like aggressive cichlids so like of course that's why flower horns are so aggressive right they'll like just fight to the death they're really strong yeah they i i had um like this big 75 gallon tank and i had like dividers made of egg crate yep. <laughs> kind of like when you keep bedders together in the same tank you have to like have dividers same thing but yep. just scale for the for the the flower horns but i basically had um i had this one flower horn that i bought when i was working at a pet store and then as a little baby 
Then I bought a Texas Aww. as a baby and I just raised them together. Anyways, long story short, the flower horn laid eggs and they were fertile. Nice. Whoa. That's cool. That was really cool. And like, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen this before, but like the, the behavior that cichlids exhibit when they have fry is just so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like they're these like really aggressive fish, but then they have offspring and like they're very gentle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We talk about it in our repro episode. We talk about it a little bit because we just oh, talk yeah? about like mouth brooders, but also like, you know, there's a plenty of aggressive cichlids. There's a whole, there's a whole litany of them that, yeah, like lay their eggs. They're really aggressive. They beat everyone up and keep them on the other side of the tank. But then like, they're very gentle with their babies. And like the, even the idea that they can just like open their mouth and the fish can just like swim inside is like crazy to me. I don't think flower horns do that, but uh, there's plenty that do. So. Yeah, we had so much to talk about just cichlid related on the reproduction and like care episode that we had to split into two episodes. So we did a whole episode on freshwater and then uh, we're doing We had a whole separate episode just on like marine fish and their like different reproductive strategies and such. So, yeah, and I'm sure we missed stuff, right? Like, oh, I'm yeah. Sure there are things there was that we no way we could have covered everything like there's it's so diverse and complex. Right. So. We kind of just scratch the surface just to kind of give lay people an idea of like the diversity of reproductive strategies that fish utilize. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So cool. Um, so you didn't uh, have fish at home so much, Ernesto. It was more like when you were you really got into it when you were going away to school. And I think did you add in here? We asked we talked in the past about like cultures of food for our fish at home and like <laughs> driving people crazy. So for me, my the majority of the fish that I kept was when I was a little kid and like I kept them at home. And so I think you probably heard that in the episode about like careers. Yeah. But uh yeah, did you want to share anything about like driving your roommates crazy or anything? Like oh man, yeah. So um I I yeah, so I Got into keeping fish when I was away at college. Um, one of my roommates, he was uh, pretty, pretty chill about all the fish and food culture stuff. He he was pretty indifferent. The other one, his main concern was frogs. He was definitely afraid of frogs. Whoa, Weird. that's a new that's, one. That's strange. I, that. like, I assured him, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking care of any frogs. Although things did get complicated when um, a friend of a friend was moving and had to get rid of this axolotl. And she offered it to me and I was like, yeah, I'll take an axolotl. That's cool. And I was like, okay, I'll be honest with you. This is an amphibian. However, it's not a frog. And he was just like, aren't all amphibians frogs? And I'm like, well, <laughs> what? <actually, laughs> I've never been so wrong in all my life. He gets out his frog digest, amphibian <laughs> digest. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, the, the, as far as the food cultures go for the fish, um, I mean, I, I, uh, I'd put buckets out and I'd get mosquito larvae and hell um, yeah, um, that was really fun. And if if you stay on top of collecting them, like you don't actually end up like making a mosquito farm. You're actually kind of like locally reducing the population of mosquitoes in your area, which is kind of nice. You just have to stay on top of it. But yeah, I did that and um, I kept vinegar eels, which was like I liked that because like. I didn't want to grow microworms. Like that just seemed like a really big pain. But vinegar eels were just easy. I just like set it and forget it. And then grindle worms were like kind of a mixed bag. Like they would kind of like exist in this like boom and bust kind of state. And you, you always knew if they were doing well because they smelled like fine. And then yeah. you knew when they uh, okay. smelled like death. So yep. uh, that was fun. 
kept that Grindelwald culture going for a while. Yeah, it's, I, I now I'm thinking about it. It's a wonder how how these don't like die from like inbreeding. I don't know. Like it's the same little population. I don't know how they do it, but they seem to do all right. Same with the rotifers, man. Like they just oh, yeah. they just reproduce and reproduce and reproduce. I haven't had to regenerate this. Co- we have a bucket colony of rotifers, and like it's been going for like. I can't even tell you how many years now. Yep. I think it's probably been going for six, six years, five yeah. years. I don't know. And mm-hmm. we've just never had to renew it. And I guess they just don't, they don't see the same genetic issues that we do, right? Whether or not they're doing uh, breeding, asexual or, or, or um, sexual or asexual reproduction, uh, which they can do both. So yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I So I have a theory about like the, the like kind of Yuri Haleen rotifers that we all keep. You have the Plicatilius or whatever that same species like the l type or whatever i we have s type brachionis oh. rotundiformis interesting so i've never had success with rotundiformis so but with the cotilius or whatever um a lot of folks seem like they get into them and then their cultures don't survive or whatever and then they give up but mm-hmm. i have found that I don't know. Maybe it's just like eventually you get a like group of them that is happy with the environment you're creating for them. <laughs> no drama. And no drama rotifers. Yeah. And so like I I had at my old job, I had a culture that had run for like three something years when I left. And then I came here, exact same setup. I used the same equipment. The only thing that's different mm-hmm. was the water source, right? But it was RO water mostly the same. Um, and I just did, the cultures did not want to start. They didn't want to start. So I just kept buying them again and again, and eventually it works. <laughs> so amazing. I, I tell, <laughs> I, that's what I tell people to do is like, you know, if, as long as your parameters are good and like, I'll help them troubleshoot, you know, whatever the issue might be with those buckets or whatever, and make sure that their husbandry kind of looks like what I'm doing. And I'm like, just keep buying them. They're not that expensive. Just keep buying them until they are off to the races. <laughs> you have this like a hyper adapted population to the specific bucket and like water yeah yeah. yeah yeah it's like it likes that salinity and that temperature uh and it's it's good and they're like producing like wild right so i don't know but hmm. i might yeah i think just like in everything else don't give up it'll be fun <laughs> you hear that people don't give up just keep beating your head against the wall with rotifers and eventually yeah. they'll stick eventually they'll stick yeah <laughs> so did yeah. you say that your were your parents cool with your hobbies and stuff ernesto like they were they were chill about you bringing home all your tanks or yeah you know, they were all things considered they were like pretty supportive which looking back um big ask honestly mm-hmm. like I, I came home with like 12 plus aquariums and a baker's rack um and like a ton of jars um and a bunch of fish and um i don't know they were cool with it they they tolerated the uh the mosquito buckets they tolerated all the fish tanks um thankfully um after after undergrad i lived at home for a while and i was living in the basement and it was um it had tiles so i didn't have to worry about if there was a spill um ruining the floor or anything easy cleanup but yeah they were super cool about it um and I don't know, I think um, I think part of it was that they kind of liked it. Like when I wasn't home, they'd come downstairs and just stare at the tanks for hours. Mm. Like they liked it too. Nice. Uh, good for you. Yeah, it worked cool. out. That's yeah. good. Um, I remember this one story that just comes to my mind now about when I was, uh, I think like a, maybe like a sophomore in college and undergrad, my roommate, who's now my best friend, um, 
but at the time we were just like friends we were pretty close and uh i was like dude can you take my bed home for thanksgiving because like i'm not gonna take this thing all the way back to connecticut we were we were uh, going to school in chicago and so he was like yeah yeah that's fine so i put it inside like a dasani water bottle or you know or like some sort of bottle like that and i just like plenty of air you know it was fine and he was just gonna drive because he lived locally so he brought it home and then like i didn't hear from him for like you know the next day and i was like hey how's eugene doing his name is eugene my fish and will my friend is like uh yeah i accidentally he's not doing that well uh. and i was like why and he's like oh my dad accidentally dumped him down into the sink uh. and i was like oh are you serious and he was like yeah apparently he was like living on the flap of the garbage disposal for like an hour or so just like drying out oh no and so like because to me i thought it was like oh he dumped him down and then i was like oh no and then grabbed him and quickly put him in the tank so i was like oh he should be fine like it's not a big deal like maybe he had a little soap but like should probably be okay if it wasn't like really like a lot of detergent or something but uh yeah he did not uh he did not make it sorry eugene rest in peace i thought Um, you were gonna say because he was in a water bottle that he accidentally drank him (laughs) <laughs> oh no <laughs> you know that could have happened too i still blame uh, i still blame my best friend will for putting it near this he like left the bottle near this he probably got home he was like oh i'm so tired leaves the bottle near the sink and then of course like his parents come over and are like what's this empty half empty bottle doing here and dump this out <laughs> yeah what's that that looks like like mold just dumps it out <laughs> so needless to say i got piranhas the next year to spite him so <laughs> whatever <laughs> so you could threaten him with the piranhas if he uh wronged you again yeah put him put his hand in the tank <laughs> <laughs> so i will say that like i found and i'm sure you would relate to this ernesto that like growing up and nerding over all this stuff and having nasty cultures of whatever and and obsessing about fish even though like i feel like it probably was annoying to our parents they probably saw the value in it because it meant like oh they're obsessed with something they're kind of excited about something and maybe that could end up being i don't know a career or something like that and and i'm thankful to them for that for sure um do you feel like that kind of helped you go in the direction that you're going to or yeah oh i mean yeah absolutely like I think there's a very clear through line from um, my times in the fish closet to now, which we can get into in a bit. But yeah, as far as like my parents being super supportive and kind of like seeing that and just kind of letting it happen, um, I'm I'm really thankful to them for that. Um, Like my mom always jokes about how when uh, I was a kid, uh, she'd watch me like dig around looking for worms and stuff and like always wanting to like run around in creeks and she was like oh yeah this kid's gonna be she didn't know like what a biologist necessarily was or like an ecologist but she saw the digging and she was like yeah this kid's gonna be an archaeologist or something that belongs in a museum so do you but you know what she was kind of getting at was like oh yeah like this kid's like a scientist he wants to like you know just like learn stuff and like do things hands-on and like really get into it and she saw that and she was very supportive. So 100%, like, uh, if it were not for that, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. Sweet. And so how did that become, like, how did you go from being, like, a fish college kid to your career that you are now? Like, basically, how'd that, how'd that go? Let's talk about the trajectory of that, I guess. Sure. So, um, like I said, uh, undergrad, I was breeding fish. It was a really big hobby for me. It was pretty much just, like, classes, fish stuff. 
And then I was also like doing Legion acapella. So I was just kind of like doing a bunch of random stuff that not related at all, but I, I was doing the stuff I liked. And I think that's kind of like a, a common uh, a theme for me as I kind of uh, progressed through my career. So anyways, fish closet undergrad during that time, I, uh, I got a job at a local fish store. Um, I worked there for a year which was a really cool experience. I got to take care of all sorts of fish um, mm. on the store floor, you know, rang people up. Um, but my boss at the time, uh, besides owning the fish store, he was also uh, the curator for this um, local uh, like natural history display. So we, we actually went out um, with like dip nets and same nets to catch stuff um, in the local area to like, put up in these tanks um to put on display so like mm. I, I remember fondly like going into this flooded creek and we were trying to corner this koi that was like i don't know like five feet long and it just kind of like splashed mm. out wiggle across the rocks and then jumped out of the reach of our nets and i was like that was insane um <laughs> but like that was super cool and i was like oh maybe i want to like you know like be a field biologist and like mm. be out in a field and doing stuff like this um and like we went say netting on the beach i got paid to like catch fish at the beach. It was great. But like I did that for a while. That was kind of um, informative for me as to the kinds of work that I did like to do. Um, so I did that. And then I finished undergrad. And I did not know what I wanted to do. I just finished. I didn't have anything really lined up. I did have something lined up. Um, I was going to go to Puerto Rico and like be a, a, a field assistant. And it was going to be paid and I was going to chase butterflies around. Um, I didn't know the first thing about butterflies. But it did <laughs> same itch in my brain, which was like obsessing over like biodiversity. Cause as you know, like butterflies are like super um morphologically diverse, right? So I was like, okay, mm. I took I can totally see myself getting obsessed with this. Um, needless to say, that fell through. So I had nothing going on after undergrad. So I moved back home. I figured, all right, like I I don't know what I'm doing. I need an income. Um, and I don't I I want to be doing something that I'm like kind of interested in. So I worked at Petco for like a year and a half, and um, that changed me. You know what's really weird is there is a Petco that's near me-ish. Like, it's in this state. It's in, like, the west part, like, western side of Denver. Of all the fish stores I've been to or, like, pet stores I've been to, that's the best store I've ever been in. Ooh. And what? I... Enough that like I wrote a an email to like Petco higher ups and like the management of that store to say like, wow, the store is pristine and like you guys need to pay everybody in there more money. Where <laughs> like, was that one? <laughs> I, it was like Westminster, Colorado, something Amazing. like that. Like enough that like I would go back there and I would not hesitate to buy an animal from there. It was really really weird. The whole store was pristine it wasn't like it was new like it just the people that work there like clearly knew what they were doing like you know you you yeah. know when you walk into a bed store you hear people talking and you're kind of like i know more than you this is bad <laughs> <laughs> and yep. and like it was i had no reservations everything was great they even had like cultured saltwater fish there like mm. no saltwater fish that were like wild caught they had like you know this is where our fish come from like it was wild. I, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, it's just the only pet co I've ever been into that I was like, I didn't want to die after. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I so, pet co is our sponsor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
No, I mean, I think that like the, uh, the employees that actually care really makes or breaks a store. Like I've, I've been at locations where like people were just kind of there to like get through the day. But then like there were other people that were just like super into the animals and like I'd geek out with them. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough that I was working as the um, aquatic specialist. So I basically I didn't have to like be in the front of the store and like bring people up most of the time. I, I mean, I would get tagged in every now and then. But for the most part, I was just in the back, like cleaning fish tanks and like vibing. And then if someone like came into the store asking me what they needed for a fish, I'd basically tell them. Yeah, look, man, uh, don't buy any of this. This is useless. This is crap. Listen to me. Here, 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 bare bones, here's what you need. And then here are the things that will make things nice. You don't need it, but it's kind of nice. And mm-hmm. I think that people were just kind of receptive to that because they're like, okay, yeah. this guy is just like sh- uh, shooting straight. Like he he's being honest. So that actually ended up netting more sales um, uh, for, for the store, which I, I didn't get commissioned, but like I was just being mm-hmm. honest. It, it, it went pretty far. I was the exact same way. I worked in a uh, like a chain store back in Canada that mm. eventually got rolled into PetSmart, but it wasn't PetSmart uh. at the time. It was its own chain. And I was the fish person. Actually, yeah, I worked in fish. And uh, and yeah, so I didn't have to do anything other than the fish department. And it's unbelievable how much people appreciate if you're just honest with them. And yeah, I, totally. I would just say, do not buy these things. You can go to Home Depot across the, the parking lot and go get these things instead. Um and don't buy these animals, but you know, this is where you get these and, and they'll come back and they'll buy the giant tank from you and the whole setup, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean like that sort of like DIY spirit of the hobby, I think has really informed how I solve problems in lab, you know, like there, you know, Mm. you could spend the money and like buy the thing that's like custom made and like, it could make your life easier, but like how much easier. Right. And like, I think that because of all the experience I had with just the the fish keeping hobby that like I'm more inclined to DIY something if I know it's going to work just as good and it's not going to fail. But then I also know like the limits of my ability to tinker. Right. And I'm like, all right, let's just buy the thing. It's going to make our lives easier. But I have that to kind of fall back on, which has been really, which has served me more than I thought it would, honestly. Mm. So after Petco, uh, what was, what was next for you? So I worked at Petco and for a while I was doing that and then like I wasn't making enough money so I started working part-time as a substitute teacher at my old high school Um, yeah so that was that was uh awkward uh since some of those kids knew my little brother so I'd walk in and they were like wait are you are you his brother and I'm like yeah (laughs) anyway it it was it was like uh really awkward but I did that for a while and then I uh, the school year ended and then I picked up a part-time job working at a state park which was really cool so I would just like do Petco stuff and then go to the state park and like hang out in nature and get paid to like walk around and like give people tours and stuff. But then mm. after that, I saw a job posting at Janelia, which uh, as, as as many of the viewers here know, Josh is a former uh, Janelian mm-hmm. and uh, he's directly responsible for um, poaching me from Janelia. <laughs> wow, that's cool. <laughs> Jim, if Jim is listening, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. <laughs> sorry, Jim. Sorry, Jared. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I started working at Janelia as a study support technician too. And um, it, it, it was cool. I, uh, at the time, I had a lot of fish husbandry experience. I had a bachelor's degree. I knew I was interested in like 
genetics and biology. But aside from those things, I was like, I don't really know. I don't have like a lot of hard skills in these industries. So considering what I knew at the time and the job position, I, it was it was a pretty smooth transition. I wasn't new to fish um, or anything, but it was my first time doing animal husbandry um, in a, a, a biomedical research sort of setting. And it was cool. I mean, I learned a lot about zebrafish. I learned about how they were raised. We did a bunch of other aquatic organisms. Um, and then especially during the pandemic, right? Like I was working there and just kind of like seeing people doing research just like a few rooms over. Mm. Um, so it was like kind of cool. Like I was doing fish stuff and I was like, I was watching people working at the bench and I was, I, it, I guess the exposure and the proximity to all of that just kind of got me thinking like, I, I could do that probably, maybe. So um, fast forward to like uh, the tail end of 2020. And uh, basically I was getting pretty tired of working there. I, I had been doing the same thing for a while and I was starting to think about, you know, maybe getting into research. And then um, in addition to those thoughts, sort of like stewing, I also like got out of a relationship. So I was like, okay, cool. There's nothing tying me to Virginia. So then I was just <laughs> like, all right, what do I do now? And um, I just... Google search zebrafish New York City. And then like the job posting <laughs> showed up and I was like, oh, cool. Let me apply to this. And then later on, I uh, um, later on in the application process, I remembered that Josh was working at Columbia and we had spoken just a few months prior to that, I think. So anyways, yeah, I remembered he was there and I was like, yeah, like, can you tell me more about this job? And one thing led to another. And um, yeah, I interviewed with my boss and then I started working in the Smeaton lab. So that was really cool. So I went into that job with prior experience in specifically zebrafish husbandry, not a whole lot of experience in wet lab, like working at the bench, but still some research experience and other things. Like I did like um, different projects in undergrad um, outside of just classes. So like I had like some research experience, I had some like internships and things, but not quite this. And yeah, I just kind of like, I rolled with it. Like I, I learned a ton of stuff. Actually, it's funny. I, I, um, I was I was a uh, uh, leading lab meeting today. Um, and it was Hell my last, yeah! It was my last lab meeting, and I was like, "Oh, um, I haven't been working on anything new." And uh, my boss was just like, "Yeah, I mean, you can just like give us a timeline of what you've done since you've been here." And I was like, "Cool." So then I <sighs> just threw together this slideshow of like all the things I did from like year one, two, and three, and it was it was kind of surreal, like walking through and seeing sort of how things ramped up. But anyways, we can get into the nitty gritty of. The position in a bit but um yeah that's kind of where i landed like i i, I came out of undergrad not really knowing what i wanted to do i, I did fish stuff I had a fish closet worked my way through ended up in a lab um and then eventually applied to grad school and lo and behold like this this fish through line was still useful because mm. i needed a hook for my writing samples so i, I talked about the fish closet and like <laughs> Really, it was good enough for like some people because I got it accepted in a few places. So yeah, I mean, I guess uh, uh, that that just kind of goes to show uh, don't don't give up, kids. It's uh, you know just just keep just keep just just keep hammering away your hyper fixation and it'll it'll all work out probably. Definitely, um, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It seems like you have like a wide breadth of like experiences that kind of helped you get to like that next step, like within your life, um, just working from like at Petco and then just going to into research, which is like really cool. But yeah, as you mentioned, like, I guess let's get into what your average day looks like as a um, technician. 
Sure. So as as a technician in our lab, I don't really have an average day. Like, <laughs> I, I think uh, part of the reason why I was hired was because, like, I, you know, I talked about all this DIY stuff I did, like, in the mm. bitch hobby. And I just, I like tinkering. And my boss knows that. My PI knows that. So in the lab, I'm, like, the first person she asks. She just kind of throws me at different problems and like sees if it works or not and i'm like mm, okay let's give it a shot um i think i'm generally like a pretty good sport about it but yeah she she throws me at, at, at different problems just try and i think that was like a really a good thing for me to learn because it kind of just gave me the confidence to tinker and um just try stuff out and if it doesn't work there's still stuff to be learned from that that you can incorporate into like your next decision so like that was great but anyways i, I i'm thrown at like random things um, I'm trained broadly in like a little bit of everything in labs. So like I'm kind of, I kind of serve also as a backstop for everyone. So we have like uh, uh, PhD students, we have another technician, uh, we have rotation students that come through. Um, and basically, if someone needs to get trained on something, or if they need an extra set of hands on something, or if they're gonna be away for a day or two, like I I know how to do more or less everything in labs. So they can just like tag me in and I I got it. But yeah, I mean, so like that that can be anything from like you know um like basic like animal husbandry with like our petri dishes just making sure our embryos are clean or like screening stuff under the fluorescent scope um if someone needs me to do fin clips and genotyping like i can do it uh pcr is a pain but you know it it, it, it builds character so i can do that <laughs> um, uh, if someone needs like tissue embedded in paraffin and then microtome to make slides or staining and stuff like I, I can do that so basically i can just get tagged into all sorts of stuff and aside from that uh, aside from being a tinkerer and um, being a backstop to sort of more or less all the lab activities. Um, I also just kind of do like general admin stuff. So I'm like at my desk, emailing people, doing lab orders, that kind of stuff. And recently, I uh, also took on an undergrad. So I, I trained him mm. up on just like basic zebrafish stuff. And um, we have this project now uh, where we're trying to get a, a live intubation rig up and running to image zebrafish through a, a, a see-through, uh, what is it called? A, a, through a chamber slide. So basically the idea is that like um, the the zebrafish is intubated with tricane. It's, just, um, can you explain what intubation is just so people know? Oh yeah, yeah. So intubation is basically uh, you, you take a tube and you put it in. <laughs> uh, <it's> yeah. <laughs> So like, so when they get intubated with this little tiny tube, because zebrafish are tiny, uh, they get a little tiny tube and it basically just delivers the, uh, anesthesia, the, the, the tricane directly to them and basically, uh, uh, keeps them in a, a steady state of induction so that they're staying still and we can image the, the bits of tissue that we want to see in real time. So they're unconscious, right? So they're unconscious, they're yeah. receiving water and, and anesthetic through the, through the mouth and gills. And so they're constantly unconscious while you can do these procedures, right? Yeah. So like what we're trying to do eventually is to get them in this uh, intubation setup so that we can do uh, confocal imaging of the jaw joint and the ligament, which are the two tissues that we're interested in as a lab. Um, and essentially see like in real time regeneration more or less, because as things are now, you know, we're, we're taking individual pictures at different time points, um, both within the same individual and across different individuals at different time points, but at higher resolutions. But at the end of the day, these are all snapshots, right? So if we can just get even like a, a 24 hour window of like seeing what the cells are doing 
on like a, 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 at a really high resolution. Like that would be really exciting. Um, so that's the end goal. I kind of got the live intubation rig up and running, but it hasn't been optimized by any means. And that's kind of what our undergrad is taking care of now. Um, there's a paper that's been published on this live intubation rig, and we're kind of adapting it from that. But our needs as a lab are slightly different from what um, their lab was trying to do. So um, it, it's these tweaks that we need to figure out still. And um, our, our undergrad, he's he's a good sport and he he catches on really fast. He's a smart guy. Um, so it, it hasn't really been an issue training him on not only basic zebrafish stuff, but also just like handing him the reins to this project. Awesome. And so when you talk about yeah. like joint regeneration, are you looking at like specific like cells or like even neurons that are associated uh, with like things that they are doing? Like, what are you guys looking at? Yeah. So um, our lab, uh, it, it's primarily two regeneration models. So uh, we're looking at ligament regeneration in the zebrafish, um, as well as whole joint regeneration. Okay. Um, I, I helped out a bit with the uh, ligament regeneration paper, which we just published this year. So if uh, you or the visitors Yay. at home want to go to, uh, let me pull up the website. If you guys want to go to smeatonlab.com slash publications, mm -hmm. you'll see a list of um, all of our publications. As Smeaton well. is spelled S-M-E-E-T-O-N, right? Yes. Smeaton Lab. Okay. Yeah. So um, smeatonlab.com slash publications. You'll see all of our work from uh, newest to oldest. Um, as well as a cool picture I took up at the top. But yeah, so we uh, we, we published a paper on ligament regeneration, um, and I worked also um, on whole joint regeneration. Uh, and yeah, so those are the two um, like groups of tissues that we're really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, uh, so we're not really looking at like specific cells so much as um, like all the cells involved. So like with the whole joint regeneration, uh, essentially what happens is, you know, you 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 resect out uh, one of the jaw joints. Um, we do it on the left side. Um, so you make this uh, a, a cut anterior to the, the joint, okay. posterior, and then dorsal to it, and you just like lift it out. Of course, you do all of this while the fish is anesthetized. Um, once you do that, um, you bring it back, uh, it wakes up, it swims, and essentially it's eating normally within, within the day. And within two months, it's got um, a new joint. Is it perfect? No. And that's a limitation of this model. However, the, the main takeaway here is that the zebrafish is able to regenerate all of the mature cell types that we expect in a, in a um, synovial joint. So you've got bone, you've got cartilage, you've got ligamentocytes, um, as well as um, synovium, uh, which are the, the cells that uh, uh, I should define what a synovial joint is. But basically, a synovial joint is just kind of like a um, a joint that is like encapsulated and lubricated um, with uh, um, lubricin. So you have this encapsulated joint. Think about like your knee. That's an example of a synovial joint and synovial mm. joints are one of the most common joints in animals. So we're using the jaw joint and the zebrafish as a model for synovial joint regeneration. And the zebrafish is able to bring back all four of those mature cell types within two months. Awesome. Yeah. And are there any other qualities that the zebrafish has that is useful for joint regeneration? Yeah. I mean, you know, like in, in uh, the human context, right? Like, like we all know someone with osteoarthritis, you know, it, it also like OA is just kind of this degenerative disease. Like we're not good at making new articular chondrocytes it's kind of like you you erode it and then what you get in, it, in its place is uh, a substitute that isn't nearly as good as the the original um but with mm. zebrafish they're just able to make new articular cartilage like just from scratch you know like 
you cut out the whole joint and then two months later you have a new one like that's just that's kind of crazy if you think about it like there are no like like there's no like old articular cartilage in that site that is like contributing to this new joint right you like you cut it all out Mm. so it's it's just able to make it from scratch and i mean like in humans right like we you know uh with uh like ligament regeneration right like we can't regenerate ligaments either right like you yell tear and um you know people what they 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 transplant like your achilles tendon or something like it's it's like an un i mean it's a substitute right and it kind of gets the job done but it's not nearly as good as the new thing as the the original thing um whereas with zebrafish again like they you you cut the ligament and um they just grow a new one like it's kind of crazy that they're able to do this and in in the uh, ligament regeneration context they can do that in a month you know like that's just kind of crazy like i i don't know i can't yeah. emphasize enough like kind of like how magical it is because like we're not good at regenerating you know yeah. like so if, sure. if you can understand like the uh, uh the mechanisms that they're leveraging to regenerate their tissues like i think that's really exciting i think like down the line like it's gonna be you know i'd say like 40 years in the future or whatever we're gonna be making fun of like the fact that we would just like frankenstein patch people you know what i mean like the idea of <laughs> yeah. getting skin grafts like, like what were we doing right we we're just taking parts of your body and putting sure. in other parts to like make it work and like that will i think that'll be completely gone in the future when we're old or maybe after we're dead i don't know yeah <laughs> I am mostly familiar with like arthritis, other than the fact that I'm probably the most arthritic person on this. <laughs> you old? No, I'm I'm old? Yeah, I am old. It's fine. But uh, I, my perspective for arthritis is largely like from the veterinary end of things. So, you know, we do some pretty brutal stuff in like human med to try to like provide therapies and like mm. treatments for folks that are, are that are dealing with arthritis but like in vet med it's just like let's just cut the bones and glue them together and hope for the best you know like <laughs> but uh i just wanted to kind of get you to elaborate a little bit more maybe ernesto on kind of like for the, the lay person that doesn't kind of have knowledge of oa or just even i think is it largely oa kind of work that you guys are doing osteoarthritis and not necessarily the other kinds of inflammatory because arthritis is like a big family of like inflammatory conditions right so for someone like me i have psoriasis so i have to worry about psoriatic arthritis which is an autoimmune condition but i think the most common arthritis that that we see in in vertebrates anyway <laughs> in bone animals with bones uh is uh is like the inflammatory arthritis that's osteoarthritis right so are you able to like kind of elaborate more and i know you have a little bit already on kind of like why arthritis sucks like you know like what are the kind of current solutions that we deal with? Do you have any ideas about that kind of stuff? Yeah. So um, yeah, definitely OA is kind of like our main like clinical relevance sort of uh, uh, pitch that we have when we're talking about this to those outside of lab, particularly clinicians. But yeah, I mean, um, uh, as, as things stand now, uh, as, as, as things are, they, um, you know, you've got whole joint replacement, which wears out in like 10 years and is also like a really, uh, invasive procedure so you know sure you might be able to get it done when you're like 40 50 60 um, but it's only going to be good for 10 years and what you're going to get it replaced again at like 70 or 80 like would you even be okay getting through that procedure like so mm. it's, it's an imperfect solution right um you've also got um i mean like you've got like like biomedical engineers trying to like figure out colonizing these scaffolds with cells to sort of like rebuild a new joint that way 
But from what I understand, they haven't been able to get um, articular chondrocytes specifically to differentiate in that context. And articular chondrocytes are really important because they are positive for a gene called PRG4. In, in, in mammals, it's PRG4. In zebrafish, it's PRG4B. But basically what this, this gene does is it encodes for lubricin, which is um, this protein found in synovial joints. And uh, it's it's just it just lubricates the, the joint. So, um, you know, it, with these like scaffolds, like you're not getting articular chondrocytes differentiating, right? So you don't have necessarily you don't have um, a lubricating joint per se. Like maybe you've got like some forms of cartilage, like maybe like fiber cartilage there, or like hypertrophic chondrocytes. Like you've got like different kinds of like less like I guess like jointy um, air quotes mm-hmm. jointy <laughs> cartilage is present, but um, it's it's not. <laughs> scientific terms jointy (laughs) i like it but yeah so i mean you know joint replacements um maybe scaffolds but yeah as things stand now that's kind of the problem is that you know we don't have great solutions to it and it's also like very pervasive right like we all if we don't have osteoarthritis we know someone with osteoarthritis and eventually if you're around long enough you too will get osteoarthritis so it's it's pervasive right so there's a lot of interest in addressing oa and if we can look at zebrafish and see how, you know, they can just regenerate new joint tissue, then like if we can understand how they do it, then maybe we can do the same thing in ourselves or at least something similar, right? For sure. Do we see or have you observed at all arthritis that actually persists in, in aging zebrafish? Have you seen any signs of that? Because I asked because, you know, I, like I mentioned before, I kept snakes and I absolutely would have snakes that would become arthritic when they got older. And so, you know, mm. they end up, you know, they're basically a big, long spine, right? So, <laughs> so you'd end up with these ossifications of the vertebrae. And so they'd end up getting kind of like hardened around the areas that were arthritic and they just would have like very limited range of motion. And so obviously that's difficult for a snake when they're trying to eat and things like that. So I just wonder, you know, when I look at my aging zebra, fish that I'm trying to get folks to replace because they're broodstock and we don't need them anymore. I wonder if arthritis is something that these fish are, are dealing with. Have you observed any of this at all, Ernesto, or are you familiar at all? Right. Oh man. Like I can't, I can't imagine having back pain if I'm like all back. I like, know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as far as like, like OA and like these, like you, you described like these like osteophytes that just kind of like pop up, like where you don't expect them to. Like, I mean, I, um, anecdotally, like I've, I've seen an older fish, uh, when I was imaging the injured regenerating side, if I looked on the contralateral side, I'd see that I would also get like random, like bits of bone that were in places they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was a direct result of like aging per se, or if it was like, uh, uh like a, a in, an indirect injury as a result of like, you know, you, you have one side of your jaw like resected and then you've got all this like force being applied by like your muscles to like bend your head in that direction. I'm, I'm sure that's probably messing with the uh, bendability of the contralateral joint. So I've seen that um, in my own like experience. And I know that, um, oh, this is exciting. I, uh, we, we got this um, mutant line in from, I forget which lab it was, but um, it, it was a, a mutant line for um, the gene I mentioned earlier, uh, PRG4B. So we got um, these mutants for PRG4 A and B. Um, zebrafish have A and B because of the um, uh, whole genome duplication that happened in ray finned fish. So for lots of genes, they have an A and a B. 
Um, but we we got mutants for both of those. And um, the really cool thing about the PRG4B mutants, and just to remind you guys, um, PRG4B codes for lubricin. It's the lubricating protein in synovial joints. These mutants for this gene, um, they they don't have a copy that works super well, right? So basically what you see is that they they develop perfectly normal jaw joints. Like you don't need PRG4B to like actually develop a joint. You come out fresh out of the egg with, you know, regular parts, you're you're fine. But because you have this mutant, uh, you have this mutation in PRG4B, you just get OA faster. You just get, you get mm. I haven't seen it yet. I've just been told that that's a characteristic of the mutant line. And unfortunately, I won't be around to like see that happen. But I just think that's really interesting that like, as a res- direct result of this mutation, you-, you have fish that are just like, you know, getting away much sooner than they normally would. Wow, that's really interesting. It'll be interesting uh, to see how that impacts their ability to like feed and respire, yeah. all that kind of stuff, right? So interesting. Right. There's so much wear and tear in these joints that like, you know, if you have an animal that can't repair their, they, they can't refresh their their articular chondrocytes, like they just kind of fall apart. Like, I don't know. It's It's interesting. Yeah, definitely. Did you want to... Was there anything else you wanted to add about regeneration and like implications for say humans looking at like how these animals can regenerate and what the genetic basis is for that potentially? Right. So, um, you know, zebrafish and humans, we're, you know, we're, we're pretty far apart on the, the tree of life, but all that being said, we still have like, what, like 70% like, of our that are, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. Like, like 70% orthologs. So like, you know, anything that we do find with, with zebrafish, um, chances are it's going to have overlap in other model organisms from like mice all the way up to humans. Not everything, of course, like that's a limitation, but you know, zebrafish are also cheaper to keep. You can make much more of them. So as far as like throughput, like I think zebrafish are a great model to study regeneration. Um, and also they're just like inherent regeneration ability. Like they, they can just do so much that for example, mice can't do. And we use mice for all sorts of, um, modeling, um, for human disease. So, um, yeah, huge pros using zebrafish to study regeneration. And, um, as far as the genetic basis for things, yeah, I'm, (laughs) I I think that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. Like we've, we've got lots of genes in common and naturally the genes that we're looking at, we are like making sure that humans have an ortholog for it. Cool. That's great. There was another note here. Uh, just we wanted to chat a little bit about with you about um, work with cell labeling for this type of work. Can yeah. you explain to us kind of what cell labeling is and how it works for this particular model? Right. So I just want to make sure that I understand what you guys like. Um, like I know in the notes here, we talked about cell labeling. When mm-hmm. you say cell labeling, you mean like transgenic lines? like marking stuff with fluorescent proteins or did you mean something else uh you could yeah yeah why don't why not do that right i mean because you could also there's a lot of ways to label cells i guess but this is i mean you you typically are doing it that way right i don't know actually you do staining too right you do a lot of staining as well yeah we do some staining and i know that like some of the people that uh do fax sorting like i I don't know it's it's a magical machine that we just like book time on i don't really understand but um, <laughs> I know that there are stains involved to like stain nuclei. There are stains involved that will just like label live cells versus dead cells because like the live cells will take up the stain and dead cells won't. Um, mm-hmm. But I think from, from what I understand with those kinds of stains in the context of like cell sorting, I think that's literally just like incubating the cells in a tube with the stain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a minute, but 
um with it, yeah in, in those contexts that's what that is same thing with like um like bone staining you you incubate your tissue or the live animal in whatever bone stain you're using so like you can like put a zebrafish in a lizard in red for instance it'll stain their bones red and then you can like image them under a fluorescent scope which is really cool um same thing with like calcium green calcium blue you 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 stain these bones green and blue respectively uh so we do use those techniques um but then as far as like labeling like specific cell populations we do use transgenic lines for that Mm -hmm. so um kind of like in a nutshell uh the way it works is you've got you take you have the sequence of dna and you have what's called like an an enhancer or a promoter upstream um and then downstream of this enhancer or promoter you have uh um this region that codes for a fluorescent protein of some sort so like gfp for green fluorescent protein or m cherry which is like this bright red um, I think these, I think the, the genes for these proteins actually come from like, I think GFP is like jellyfish and then M cherry, mm-hmm. some anemone, but basically you just have this like piece of DNA with your enhancer or promoter upstream and then downstream of that, um, the, the, uh, the DNA that codes for the fluorescent protein. And you basically just like shove that into the organism, um, when it's a single cell or just like two cells, um, in the hopes that it, it takes up this genetic sequence. Um, and there are different ways to go about it. Like there's um, Toll 2, which is just basically you can do really big sequences, big sequences of DNA, um, but they're kind of inserted randomly into the genome. Or you can use CRISPR, um, which, you know, it's limited by just how big of a sequence of DNA you can throw in there. But um, while it's smaller, you also have the added benefit of um, inserting it into a specific site. So mm-hmm. not all sites are created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you might have your your promoter and then your gfp but maybe it's like thrown into a part of the 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 genome that's just not accessible um whereas with crispr you can take a look at the genome um look at basically uh what parts of the dna are accessible in certain contexts and then pick those spots to throw your genetic construct into but anyways i'm getting kind of in the weeds here um basically you know uh it's it's just um the enhancer or promoter just says hey Let's let's start uh, 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 transcribing stuff. Let's like start making RNA and protein. And then one of those proteins that are made happen to be GFP. Um, so basically, what happens is you're 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 telling the body, hey, every everywhere that this enhancer or promoter is expressed, also express this GFP or M cherry or BFP or whatever color you want. So um, an example of that would be like one line that we uh, use pretty often is a. Uh, Scleraxis A, M cherry. So scleraxis A, um, it's expressed in uh, ligaments and uh, tendons. And then M cherry, that's just the bright red fluorescent protein. So what do you get? You get a line that um, glows bright red in all of its ligaments and tendons. So it gets really fun because then you can combine stuff, right? Like, mm. for instance, with um, uh, uh, the scleraxis AM cherry that I mentioned, it, it, it labels ligaments and tendons in red, but you know, that that's a bit confusing, right? You see red and you're like, is that, is that a ligament or a tendon? I don't know. So then what you can do is combine that with like another line to just get a little bit more specificity. So, uh, you have the scleraxis AM cherry, and then you also pair it with, um, we have this other transgenic line called, uh, thrombospondin 4A, UNBGFP. Basically thrombospondin 4A is expressed in, um, um, articular chondrocytes, but it's also expressed in ligamentocytes, but not tendons. So 
you have a fish that is thrombospondin for A, UMB, GFP, and Scleraxis AM cherry. And you basically just like look at the animal. And if you see like basically those regions that are red and green that are double positive, tell you, okay, like that's that's probably a tendon. Uh, sorry, that's probably a ligament because it's not only expressing this marker that is expressed in tendons and ligaments, but then it's also expressing this marker that's known to be not in tendons, but ligaments. It's it's like it's kind of a game of like, uh, yeah, you're just like looking at like double positives to kind of like narrow down the kind of cell type you're looking at. So like that's kind of like one use. So working with zebrafish can have some challenges for sure. What would you say for the work that you're doing in particular? What's probably the greatest challenge of working with zebrafish for your work? Yeah, um, I think that like on a technical level, yeah, uh, they're just they're just small. Like yeah. these guys are tiny. <laughs> um, so I I have these like these comically small scissors for my fish surgeries. <laughs> <laughs> and like yeah they're just they're difficult to work with they're tiny um and as a direct result of that it's also hard to image them like we uh we had difficulty getting um like micro ct images of their skeletons um because they're so small like we went to the micro ct core and they're like um you want to you want an image you want an image of a fish like that's <laughs> yeah. sure, i guess and yeah. the image came out really bad because they didn't have the resolution for it mm. um Mm. It's really hard to find like very specific equipment for little tiny guys. But then there are also other limitations too related to size. Like if we if we want to build something to like restrict movement, we have to do so with like like very, very small variations in size, right? Because like, you know, you you've seen like a really big old female zebrafish capping out at like like 3.4 centimeters, right? Like mm-hmm. they're like, oh, that's a big one. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> someone manufacturing something, they're like, okay 2.9 centimeters 3.5 like i don't like it's it's such a small difference doesn't matter and you're kind of like kind of yeah like (laughs) you know so it's it's these like size like very small size differences on this already small animal that makes things difficult but all that being said you know like uh, we we get creative (laughs) so um where we uh we figure stuff out we figure out how to make it work but it's definitely a challenge working with such small animals For sure. We had a similar issue. We were doing some feeding trials with our fish, um, just looking at broodstock and trying to like optimize how we fed them and different like methodologies for feeding them. And at the end, we were like, we should try to like do body like uh, composition analysis on these fish and see, you know, what they're like fat versus muscle, et cetera. And so we went to the we're at a a hospital that does a lot of that kind of stuff in humans and animals, other animals. And we were like, can you do this fish fish? And they're like, yeah, if you pull like six of them, we can like (laughs) take the mean of that. Right. Because they're just too small to do the analysis on a single animal. So it's like, you know, I think we put a few fish, like a a number of them together to try to get like a mean analysis for the the tissues of those animals. So like you put like six fish in a little trench coat and you sent them to the (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So they could get like, so they could get into an R-rated movie. (laughs) 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 For sure. Were there any other challenges that you found that uh, just working with zebrafish in general? Well, I have to say that um, when we're talking about our science to other scientists, I don't know what it is, but like mouse people, am I right? Like they, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. There's kind of a, um, almost, um, I can sense it in the room like this. uh... 
like looking down their nose at us like <laughs> that is even like and yeah like, i think like um a lot of uh at least like the beginning of one's talk like, you're, you're kind of like getting ahead of the of the uh translational biology allegations like like oh no 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 it's we have 70 percent orthologs and uh look 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 they it, it, it look at the high throughput like it's it's worth it i promise like so you um it, it is a challenge like at times talking to an audience that might have already discounted you or as or is at least looking at you with some uh, uh, skepticism right which you know healthy skepticism is good but um it's certainly a challenge um whereas like mouse people come strolling in with their wonderful model organism <laughs> with women. <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean but I, I think also there's also an inherent bias with like anyone working with any model like i think everyone kind of thinks their model organism's the best for their own reasons sure, right yeah yeah and then you when you work like as a animal care staff and you kind of see like the big picture when it comes to you know all the minutiae that is surrounding you know animals in human care and how those little tiny things can impact the work that you're doing and it's like you still have that in mice too guys like i feel like sometimes they try to discount folks because we you know honestly we're not incredible as far as standardization with zebrafish husbandry or even just the background folks are using for their models we really could stand to use to do a better job but like there, there's problems like that in rodents too and just because they say that their background is this from here and it's like yeah you guys have been in crossing those for like 25 generations now are you sure you know right you know it's it, not to mention like the mouse people they 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 they, they had a head start sure yeah. You know, they've had a head start. And I think that the way things are moving with zebrafish, like, yeah, like, you know, things just keep scaling up and the technologies improve. Right. So it's it's only a matter of time before like zebrafish are like, you know, no longer at the kids table. <laughs> yeah, I think we're pretty close. Like, I think we're definitely getting there. You know, there even when it comes to like the husbandry and like health and welfare stuff, we see that at, like on my end anyway, you know, we have a couple fish vets at my facility and uh you know it's becoming a core species for new fish like new vets in lab animal they have to learn about fish uh physiology and health and uh analgesia anesthesia all that kind of stuff so um it's getting there uh, and i think like with groups like zha uh the zebrafish husbandry Oops. folks yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> we we share a lot more information about like standardizing husbandry and sharing our resources and making sure that people know like what best practices are based on like current science all that kind of stuff so we're definitely getting there so yeah but ernesto you make a great point because also for publishing it's very difficult for zebrafish users as what i've heard from others um, because when reviewers are looking at papers, they really want to see like mice as like the animal model um, being used for their research. And if they see like fish or any other ones, even they're kind of just like, oh, no, like we really would prefer you to use mouse, uh, which is like kind of crazy to me. And so hopefully that also gets changed on that level to where, you know, reviews are more open to people using different model organisms for their research, because we have to think about the three R's, right? And so, like, you know, if it's between using a non-human primate and using a zebrafish, I would rather use like a zebrafish. And even like with like a oh, mouse, no. even though that's much smaller, like there are some uses for like zebrafish as well. Yeah, like I think we occupy like a very um important sort of like middle niche right yeah. and that like transition all the way up to you know clinical trials and stuff with people 
Yeah. And so um, thank you for so much for giving us like more insight into the research that you guys are doing, like in your lab with joint regeneration. I personally didn't know anything about like joint regeneration zebrafish. I knew that like, if you cut like a piece of their heart, they can regenerate that along with like, um, when you do like uh, clipping, like their tail also regenerates. So that was like really cool to me, but just to talk a little bit more before we um, end things. So if you wanted to talk a little bit more about like your new position and kind of like the next you know, wow. opportunity. Sure. Yeah. So um, in the fall, I'll be starting as a PhD student at uh, UChicago. Uh, uh, I'll be part of the genetics, genomics and systems biology program, which is going to be really fun. It's gonna be really exciting. But yeah, I mean, basically, uh, they're, they're doing all sorts of cool stuff uh, at UChicago. I'm, I'm interested in a lot of things. Uh, fish, Fish are one, uh, that's just one thing, but you know, out there they've got all sorts of aquatic organisms, zebrafish, as well as others, they have MBL. So if I wanted to continue with like the aquatic organism route, like I totally could, and I'd have the, the institutional support to do so, you know, they have like Evo Devo people. You also have people that are like more interested in evolution, which honestly, like, that's kind of like where my heart's at is evolution broadly. And um, I mean, like when I interviewed there, when I interviewed um, at UChicago, uh, what's his name? I I, I interviewed with uh, Neil Shubin, oh, like cool. the dude that discovered technology. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. You know? awesome. I was like, I'm just, yeah, I just chatted with this guy during interviews. And like, you know, we like talked about like all sorts of stuff. We talked about like fish. We talked about like Pokemon. Like it was just like a really <laughs> cool. Um, but, you know, you've got these like evolution fish people out there. Um, but I'm also really interested in like population genetics and human populations, less so like the like, you know, biomedical and more so in just kind of like the origins of our species and our evolution. And there are like pop gen people out there and they're doing really interesting things with um like weird gene variants that we got as a result of like introgression with Denise events, right? Like just like crazy stuff. You got people doing stuff with like chimp and human um um IPSCs like getting at genetic programs unique to us and shared with chimps, um, but like kind of taking like a molecular biology, cell biology angle to it, but still answering like an evolutionary question. So, you know, it, it, they're just doing lots of cool stuff out there. And the way I see it, like there's, there are many places I could potentially land and yeah, it's just many options and like many good options at that. Yeah. No, U Chicago is a great like school, great community. I mean, they have so much going on in terms of what you just mentioned with like evolution, things like that. I mean, you have Shubin, you have Prince. I mean, you have all those like aquatic yeah. users. So that's really cool. I need to I need to chat with uh, Dr. Prince, see if she's taking any uh, rotation students this year. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll be neighbors. So because I'm at. Yeah. Amber's <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> You're at uh, Northwestern, right? Yeah, I wish we also had um, like more programs like you Chicago has because we don't have that MBL affiliation or anything like that. I'm just like, Ugh, and we don't really have um, a whole lot of aquatic species like on our end. So, but yeah, I'll mm -hmm. have to come visit you sometime. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, we can definitely do a, a getting fishy with it episode like live from Chicago. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I'm an Evo Devo nerd too. That's kind of just been shoehorned into like biomedical stuff, which is fine. I like doing the husbandry end of things, but like Evo Devo is what like I'm really into. I don't um, know if you saw that paper recently that just came out about the origin of limbs and they used all these different aquatic species, lampreys, oh, zebrafish yeah, and everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that like transient structure and development. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. 
or something. Yeah. I remember um, there was a, 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 I think I, someone did a presentation on that, like I think last year, mm-hmm. um, before the publication of this paper, I think it was about like the the paper leading up to that one. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I thought it was cool that they like tied it to like zebrafish development. And then they like pointed to goldfish and they were like, look, 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 they, um, they uh, have a duplication of their path or whatever. And it has these implications with like limb, the origin, origins of limbs. I don't know. I just think it's cool. And the only thing I could think about was like the, the fin will be leg memes. Yes. Like, like <laughs> that's all I could think about. Oh yeah. no, I don't know this. Why well, I don't want to look this up. Look it up. Thin will be leg. Yeah. It's so random because the, the, like, the first couple authors on that paper are people out of my institution and they do not really do a lot of evo devo stuff they do like heart work and like dev bio work right so um (laughs) neural crest stuff so it's just like it was just like kind of a side project that like grew into this whole thing part of it because of folks from twitter you know like scientists on twitter just shooting the shit about stuff and they ended up making this really cool paper out of it so Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, I think the coolest stuff happens when, like, the first thing said is, like, dude, hear me out. And then, like, some ridiculous premise. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, uh, oh, mm-hmm. we know these people that keep this fish and we know these people that have these fish. Let's see if they have that same structure or whatever, you know. So it was kind yeah. of cool. Kind of cool. So, uh, was there anything else, Ernesto, that you wanted to mention about what, what what's ahead for you or? Oh, man. Uh, let's see. Uh, nothing really well you know i i uh when i when i get there before classes start they actually make all of the um uh, molecular bio people do a coding boot camp which i'm kind of looking forward to Mm, smart i i don't have a whole lot of experience with coding but i'm really excited to kind of just like have this be an opportunity to like really hunker down and actually learn the skill so i think that'll be really cool too you know all of the all the cool fish stuff aside like i think it'll just be a a cool skill set to have moving forward you know whether or not i i uh you know continue in academia go to industry i don't know what where i'm gonna go that's um future me's problem but yeah it'll, it'll be a good skill to have regardless for sure definitely cool thank you so much ernesto for joining us we super appreciate you for joining us yeah, and this chatting was fun. this is yeah. great uh, maybe i'll have to have you back at some point to just nerd out about like whatever topic about fish yeah talk <laughs> about phd program <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah no that'd be super cool I'll give you guys an update on uh, mm-hmm. how grad school is going <laughs> definitely awesome <laughs> all right so i do have uh just a couple quick announcements just for folks who are listening um folks probably have seen that uh our listenership's actually been growing pretty quickly we are super thankful for everyone who's listening we know who you are that you folks who listen as soon as the episode goes live <laughs> I wake up in the morning on Friday and I'm just like a whole bunch of people already listened to the episode. It's awesome. Before I even listen to it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I hope I didn't say anything stupid. I'll just, it's, it will have recorded so long ago that I'm just like, Oh yeah. We talked about these things. Does it happen at all? By the way, we're like, you hear something said and you think of like a joke and then your own you actually say it in the podcast but you don't remember that you said it like that happens to me a lot the other thing is i will read something that i wrote and i'll be like when did i write this how did this how did this come out of my my mind uh yeah (laughs) the the joys of adhd right um (laughs) so uh, we do have one announcement and that is 
we are rapidly approaching hitting and going over a thousand listens on the podcast. So we're super thankful for that. And so to celebrate a thousand listens, when we do hit it, we are going to do a Twitch stream, which we are still working on figuring out all the details around that. So um, as you guys know, people that listen, uh, we're basically all gamers. And so <laughs> we want to do some sort of gaming thing that involves fish but uh, that is still a work in progress as far as what we're going to do. But stay tuned. Um, we'll put all that info up on our socials when the time comes. Where we'll basically just hang out live on Twitch and shoot the shit about fish and maybe nerd out about fish in a video game. So we'll see. But yeah, so stay tuned and we'll have that info. All right. So I want we just want to we're to wrap it up this way. Uh, we want to thank Ernesto so much for coming on the pod and talking about joint regeneration and zebrafish and just nerding out about all things fish with us. Um, so thank you for listening to Getting Fishy with it. You can find our website and show notes at gettingfishypod.substack.com. You can find us on Twitter at gettingfishypod and on Instagram at gettingfishypod. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Getting Fishy with it. If you want to drop us an email, you can send your complaints or questions to gettingfishypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Our theme music is Best Time by Fast Sounds. Our audio is edited by the wonderful and talented Amber Parchiadini. And we've been <laughs> and we have been getting fishy with it. So keep schooling, my friends, because knowledge is power.